You're listening to the Body Literacy Podcast, your connection to the art and science of feeling really good body, mind, and spirit. I'm your host and holistic health coach, Jen Mayo. If you've never experienced truth and freedom inside your body, an amazing adventure is about to begin. Healing happens in community. Body literacy is your tribe. Join me in discovering the keys to fearlessly unlocking your body's innate intelligence and resilience. Turn on to the wisdom of your body as we connect your wellness dots by exploring whole person healing from neuroscience and nutrition to sexual health and sleep. Join the wellness revolution and start speaking your body's language. Before we get started, I wanted to introduce you to the most profound and impactful piece of health technology I've encountered in three decades of navigating my own health challenges. LifeWave is a wearable health technology that uses your own light energy to optimize your health. If you've followed the Body Literacy Podcast for any period of time, you likely already know that I'm a bit of a walking science experiment. I have a passion for exploring how time-honored ancient healing arts can be coupled with modern science and technology to optimize our health, wellness, and vitality, and how we can empower ourselves with the knowledge and optimization of our own onboard wisdom and healing potential rather than viewing the human body as a problem to be solved. LifeWave's phototherapy patches use light to stimulate the body's natural healing systems. By applying LifeWave's non-transdermal patches to specific points on the body similar to acupressure, where the patch covers the skin, infrared light emitted from the body is reflected back into the tissue, stimulating specific regions of the brain and tapping into the body's own flow of energy and the ability to heal itself. LifeWave patches are not intended to treat any specific condition or disease, but rather support the body's own innate healing mechanisms. When we take a holistic approach to health and consider there is really only one state of dis-ease in the body imbalance, rather than the 32,000 diseases defined by conventional medicine, rebalancing the body and supporting our own built-in capacity to heal becomes a journey of ease rather than a frustrating and disempowering struggle to control dis-ease. Energy medicine operates by a different set of rules than material medicine. I talk about experience-based medicine a lot, and LifeWave is simply a therapy you have to take for a test drive to feel the benefits for yourself. To learn more or try them out, just visit genmayo.com LifeWave. Dr. Neil Nathan joins me today on this episode of the Body Literacy Podcast to discuss mold toxicity and something called cell danger response, which we will learn is the factor that explains why some people become chronically ill under the exact same circumstances that others may never get sick from at all. Dr. Nathan has been practicing medicine for 50 years and is board certified in family practice and pain management. He is also a founding diplomat of the American Board of Integrative Holistic Medicine. He's the author of several books, including Healing is Possible, New Hope for Chronic Fatigue, Fibromyalgia, Persistent Pain, and Other Chronic Illnesses, and On Hope and Healing for Those Who Have Fallen Through the Medical Cracks. Dr. Nathan has especially become known for bringing awareness to mold toxicity as a major factor for patients with chronic illness and has written the book Toxic Heal Your Body from Mold Toxicity, Lyme Disease, Multiple Chemical Sensitivities, and Chronic Environmental Illness. Dr. Nathan has been treating chronic complex medical illnesses for 30 years now and Lyme disease for the past 20 years. As his practice has evolved, he finds himself increasingly treating the patients who have become so sensitive and toxic that they can no longer tolerate their usual treatments. 
and his major current interest is in finding unique ways of helping them to recover. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Nathan. Hey, thank you for having me. Yes, yes. So um, you wrote a wonderful book called Toxic, uh, Heal Your Body, and it goes into some great detail about um, mold toxicity and some other um, issues that are affecting people who are suffering from chronic illnesses more than other um, cohorts, if you will, of people. Um, so I'm hoping we'll get to kind of get into the, the nitty gritty of, um, all of that while we've got you here for a little while today. But, um, I kind of wanted to start out and talk about, um, I think most people are at least a little bit familiar with the concept of germ theory and terrain theory. Um, you know, germ being that, um, microbes and, and germs in general, um, are what cause illness, terrain being that um, how strong your body is, is really what determines whether you fall uh, ill to certain things or not. Um, but I don't think we've really heard a lot about the toxicity model of disease. And um, I'm hoping you can shed a little idea, a little bit um, of light onto what that concept is and how um, toxic exposures to things um, kind of play out in terms of um, why some people get sick more than others. Um, so we'll kind of just start there. Um, and I know your book kind of goes into this concept of um, people who are more sensitive to others and might be what we'll call canaries in the coal mine. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, in the medical field, Mold has been thought of primarily from the perspective of allergy. We've known for a long time that people can get allergic to mold, um, not, not rare. We've also known that you can be infected by mold, where it can actually get into the bloodstream. Now, that is a very rare condition, and that's not what we're going to be talking about today. <clears throat> that is a life-threatening event, particularly caused when people have a compromised immune system and it's rare. Okay. What's new is, and by new, it's kind of slowly seeped into medical consciousness over the last 20 years that there's another aspect of mold, which we haven't really fully understood or dealt with, which is that when we are exposed to mold, what we're really getting exposed to for many people are the toxins that mold makes, which are simply called mycotoxins. And the, those toxins are similar to any other toxin you might have, any other environmental toxins like glyphosate or heavy metal toxicity. But they carry their own unique fingerprint so that when we're exposed to these toxins, we react in ways unique to all of us based on our own genetics and biochemistry. Okay. So mold toxicity is... First of all, very common. It's estimated that about 10 million Americans currently have some degree of mold toxicity, and most of them have no idea that they're having it. It's often being labeled by people who don't really know much about it as something else. So it might be called fibromyalgia. It might be called chronic fatigue. It might show up as what looks like asthma. It might show up as an autoimmune condition. And all of those essentially are missing the actual cause. Okay. So it's a very, very important 
condition to be recognized because there are literally millions of people in this country who have it, who have no idea that they have. All right. All right. And is that part of the dilemma is that if you if you're not properly identifying the cause of those symptoms, then treating it becomes almost impossible? That's sort of a duh. Yeah. Um, (laughs) One of the most important concepts in medicine, which I've practiced for 50 years, is without a good diagnosis, you're nowhere. Yeah. Um, the number one thing of any person practicing medicine is what is making this person sick. Now, there may be multiple causes. Part of the issues in medicine for a long time have been we wanted think to be one cause for each known disease. Right. And what we're learning is that's not the case. Right. There are multiple causes for a variety of conditions. Take something like chronic fatigue. There are uh, Dr. Teitelbaum and his book, uh, From Fatigue to Fantastic, identified 180 different biochemical perturbations that can can lead to chronic fatigue. So so to think about chronic fatigue is, well, what one thing causes that is medicine has to to move past that. That's not what's happening. Most of the people that I look at And I have a unique practice. I basically treat people who I say have fallen through the medical cracks where they've seen five, 10, 20 physicians. They're still sick. They don't have a diagnosis. And at that point, unfortunately, a lot of physicians will then say, well, it's got to be in your head. If we can't find it, then the problem is there's a number of medical conditions that don't get a lot of airtime in medical school. Lyme disease, mold toxicity, and I can other environmental conditions. Very, very little is taught in medical school. So people can become physicians, they can become specialists, and have no idea that there are these conditions that are making their patients sick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've heard you use this term ecogenic, unless I'm using the wrong terminology here. Um, the the interplay between genetics and the environment? Well, there's an interplay between our genetics and everything. Um, We have what we call genetic potential. So we now have the ability to look at our SNPs. Things like 23andMe can look at hundreds of some of our genetic potentials. The issue is it's not always clear whether that genetic potential is being expressed or not. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. So you can't make a diagnosis genetically. You have to make a diagnosis of what's actually happening to people biochemically. However, our genetics do influence that so that there are people who are more predisposed to having mold toxicity or Lyme disease or anything just by their genetics. The way the way I think about it is we are all biochemically and genetically unique so that um, there isn't a one size fits all way of um, looking at a patient and going, um, I have these tests, you have that. Yeah. It's, it's, you just have to put the entire history of a patient in context to really understand what's going on. I, I hope, I hope that's clear. Can you kind of talk about the difference? Because I think, um, you know, mainstream allopathy versus um, 
more functional and holistic approaches that someone like yourself is probably um, incorporating more kind of has uh, different approaches to the concepts of um, treatment versus curing versus healing. Can you kind of describe what the difference between those three things are and, and why does it matter? I'm not sure it does matter. Okay. Um, um, I think we're splitting hairs. Yeah. Um, for example, in Lyme disease, um, some Lyme specialists believe that Lyme can't be cured, but it can be contained where okay. you can get the, the Lyme bacteria down enough that you get the immune system to be able to keep it under containment. Okay. We know that from birth on, we're exposed to tons of infectious illnesses, viruses, for example, and some of them are still in our bodies. It isn't that we killed every single germ that ever hit us. Yeah. Um, we, our immune system learns how to keep them in check. Mm -hmm. So with Lyme disease, there are some experts who believe that you can't cure it. On the other hand, some of us believe you can cure it because okay. from my perspective, cure means getting the body strong enough that it has no manifestations of that illness at all. Okay. So I don't care if there's three Lyme bacteria still in that body. Right. And if someone doesn't think that's a cure, that's fine. But if I have a patient who no longer leads any treatment whatsoever and yeah. they have no symptoms, then they're living a healthy life. Yeah. From my perspective, they're cured. Yeah. And I prefer thinking about it that way um, rather than um, the containment model implies that you have to look over your shoulder for the rest of your life right. in fear. Right. I, I don't like patients living in fear. Right. I rather look at them as, look, you did a great job. We've got this Lyme completely under under control. And as far as I'm concerned, you're cured. Yeah. And that psychologically is a much more powerful message to a patient than, well, it's contained. Yeah. yeah. So you can see where I'm coming from. From oh. my perspective, getting a patient well so that they're high functioning again, call it cure, whatever language you want to use. I don't right. care. Yeah, but I, but I but I like to use the language that is the most positive. Yeah, definitely, and and not fear based, and not fear based. Yes, I I agree completely. Um, you've kind of talked about um how the dynamics of of chronic illness have changed specifically in the last thirty years. Um, can you kind of elaborate on what factors have um played into why we're seeing so much more chronic illness and why even the dynamics of those chronic illnesses have changed significantly in that time period. Yeah, it, it is very well documented statistically that we have had an explosion of autoimmune disease, cancer, um, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, um, a wide variety of infectious diseases, um, neurodegenerative diseases, autism has exploded from being rare to being, you know, two to three percent of all children are now getting autism. So the underlying theme for all of these illnesses is inflammation, that 
something is inflaming our body. And depending on your genetics and chemistry, it will manifest in a particular individual in a way that fits that. So, and, and there's a, an age to that. So an inflammatory process in a child may manifest as autism or ADHD. In an adult, it may manifest as chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia. In an older adult, it may manifest as uh, Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's. But, it, but it's the same physiology. It's the same chemistry. And again, not all physicians have really grasped that. That we're looking at the same thing through different through different lenses, depending on on how on how you look at it. Now, the most obvious cause of that, from those of us who are working in this field, is that the um, environment that we live in has gotten really toxic. I mean, it's a no it's a no brainer. I know that there are people who believe that global warming doesn't exist. Um, Everyone is entitled to their own opinion. The yeah. science, the science doesn't back it up. The yeah. science tells us that we're in trouble. Yeah. The science tells us that our world has become so polluted, not only with heavy metals and environmental chemicals, but also with EMFs. Yeah. The, sh the shift from 4G to 5G. I don't think that people understand that isn't a shift of one from four to five, it's a, it's a shift of a thousandfold greater exposure right. to electromagnetic fields. Um, and again, genetically and biochemically, some people are far more likely to be affected by that. So we're seeing much more of what's now called EHS, electrohypersensitivity syndrome, which is um, a lot of people are, are can't be by their computer or cell phone. It literally will make them have brain fog or uh, cognitively impaired or fatigue or headache or it's a wide variety of symptoms that you can get. So all of these environmental exposures, and you use the term um, uh, canaries in the coal mine. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, that is the correct way to look at it. Okay. The people who are getting sick are the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. That if we do not do something about this, our whole planet is going to be sick. Yeah. And what we're learning is, yes, we can treat these things. But if we could prevent it, by gosh, that would be really great. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, and on that note, um, in terms of, of people who are more sensitive, um, you've talked about this kind of uh, the relationship between toxicity and sensitivity and sort of this negative feedback loop that exists between the both of them. Um, can you describe how that works? Sure. Toxicity is very simply a reaction to a toxin. Okay. And, and that can affect the body in multiple biochemical levels. Sensitivity is really about the nervous system. There are certain parts of the nervous system, particularly the limbic system and the vagal nerve, which sure. register that sensitivity. It's their job to tell us that something we're being exposed to, a stimulus, light, sound, touch, chemicals, food, EMF, that, that this is not good for us. 
And so we will react to that. Our nervous system is trying to protect us. That's sensitivity. Now you can get toxicity and sensitivity. And in fact, that's very common because a lot of toxins trigger sensitivity. Okay. So that you can be both toxic and sensitive. And if you don't get rid of the toxins that are triggering the sensitivity, the sensitivity can't go away. Okay. But the sensitivity can be treated. Um, uh, We've just finished um, a new book, which um, is currently at the publisher. It won't be out for maybe six months. Tentatively titled, um, Why Is My Body So Sensitive? And I've written it with a whole team of medical experts, each of which is expert in the particular area that they're writing about. And what it's about is the sensitivity. Like there's, again, an epidemic of that. Unfortunately, a lot of people who become sensitive, this is not well understood, even by physicians. And they're being told it's in your head. Nobody could react to that or no one else smells that but you. And the answer is, Yes, they are smelling it and they have a more sensitive system. So first of all, they're not being believed, which makes life much harder for them. And what they don't understand yet, and that's the point of my new book, is we now understand what is causing it. We now understand the chemistry and physiology of sensitivity and we can treat it. Okay. So I'm hoping that this will be a blessing to literally the millions of people all over the world who have become overly sensitive. And sorry, folks, you're going to have to wait a good six months to let <laughs> available, but it, it will be out there before long. Is, is part of the problem that the Western science on this, I know the, the, the Eastern healing arts have kind of understood this conceptually, at least for a very, very long time. Um, but the Western science is just kind of catching up on how to quantify how the autonomic nervous system and the limbic system and um, the vagus nerve operate. Um, Do you think, you know, medical schools in particular, but even doctors, once they're out of medical school are having, you know, just, they don't have the time or the energy to invest into learning the new science that we're seeing coming out that actually does quantify how these systems work. That's a basic component of, the history of science and the history of medicine. Yeah. Which is if a new device comes out or a new drug, there's a huge economic impetus to bring that forward. Yeah. A, a new idea, not so much. Yeah. And the history of all science is that new ideas are basically first laughed at, then fought tooth yeah. and nail. Mm-hmm. It, it's as if. Until you prove this to my satisfaction personally, I can't accept that this is a valid piece of information. Yeah. What I, what I get when we talk about mold toxicity, what I, and I've treated successfully three or 4,000 people with that, what I get from some of my colleagues is, well, if that was a valid concept, they would have taught it to me in medical school. Yeah. I go, what? <laughs> Do you understand what a, what a silly idea that is. I went to medical school 50 years ago. There is so much that we know now that was not even dreamt of. And I went to medical school. If all I could do was treat people with what I learned in medical school, I'd be back in the dark ages. Right. So, but I get that a lot. I get a lot of people saying, if 
if this was valid, they would be teaching it at the meetings that I go to. Well, we do teaching at the meetings I go to, but but the meetings I go to, as you have alluded to, are in integrative and functional medicine. So we are teaching the doctors who are interested in that right. this information. But if you go to an ordinary meeting of the American Academy of Family Practice or Pediatrics, nobody's going to give a lecture on that, right? Because they don't they don't know that it even exists yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you do you find that the doctors who are finding that their way to that that information and have the curiosity to explore it more are ones who are existing or leaving perhaps even you know these larger corporate medical conglomerates because I feel like you know I've even in the past few years I've seen doctors who have left that system to go out on their own um, because they weren't they were having to practice to the quote unquote standard of care rather than being able to explore newer ideas that are are unfolding before us. Yeah, absolutely true. And no question about it. You can't do this type of work in that HMO type corporate setting right. where you're being told, well, for one thing, you're being told how productive you have to be, which is defined as how many people can you see in seven minutes? Right. Um, <laughs> Per, per visit. Right. This is very complicated work. You can't treat Lyme disease or mold toxicity with a seven minute visit. These patients are very sick. They are complicated. Many, many organ systems are involved so that seven minutes is barely enough time to say hello. Um, you, you can't possibly do that unless you have the freedom to spend longer with those patients, get to the bottom of it, and then to work through the complicated treatment programs that we use. It takes a minimum of a year to treat mold. It takes a minimum of a year or two to treat Lyme disease. This is not a, a one office visit. I give you an antibiotic and you get well. It's, it is a very complicated. Illnesses that we're seeing have become more and more complicated. They don't fit the model. Right. So, um, it would be rare, not impossible, but rare to find a physician who is allowed to practice within a corporate setting. So almost everyone that you're going to see will almost need to be outside of that. And unfortunately for patients, it means you're probably going to have to pay out of pocket for it. Right. Because the larger insurance companies, including Medicare, don't yet pay for or honor the time required, or the treatments that we'd be giving here. So literally, giving Medicare. If Medicare has the right, patients don't always know that, to come into my office and look at any chart they choose to for any reason they want to, and if my chart isn't up to their standards, they can fine me $10,000 for each notation in the chart that they don't agree with. Really? So, so if I write 10 things in a chart that they don't agree with, I literally could be fined $100,000. Um, so that it's almost impossible for a physician who wants to help people in this way to take Medicare or insurance because that we're, what they're doing is they're setting themselves up for possible financial ruin. And it's not a theory. It has happened to many of my colleagues. 
Right, right. Yeah, I've seen cases of that before. I wasn't aware about the the Medicare charting issue, though. That's um, that's crazy. And, uh, and, and to make it worse, yeah, uh, there are Medicare whistleblowers. So if a patient wants to make some money, they can tell Medicare that they're being traded in this particular way, and they will get a a small portion of the fines that Medicare charges that physician. So it it creates a crazy, horrific adversarial potential in that people who, for financial reasons and for no medical reasons at all, can can ruin a really um, superb physician who's just trying to do their best. So I don't think patients understand that, that um, when I stopped taking Medicare, some of my patients got mad at me. And I would try to explain this. And they'd say, when I did explain it, they would go, that's crazy. And I would go, yes, it is. But I have to deal with that craziness. So this is what I, this is, if you want me to keep treating you, this is what I have to do in order to be your doctor and do the kind of work you want me to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, friends, I wanted to take a minute out of today's episode to tell you about molecular hydrogen and how you can benefit from medical grade hydrogen in the comfort of your own home. I've been using molecular hydrogen for a hot minute, and it quickly became one of my favorite healing tools. Hydrogen is a selective antioxidant that has been shown to reduce oxidative stress and inflammation. Hydrogen water has been proven to improve mental clarity, prevent cognitive illness, reduce oxidative stress and inflammation, boost mental focus and clarity, and help with mental illnesses. By neutralizing harmful free radicals and oxidative stress, which is the leading cause of disease, hydrogen water has been proven to help with regulating heart disease, diabetes, reducing wrinkles and skin issues, and speeding up wound healing. As with all things in holistic health, when you support how the body naturally and optimally functions, the body can rebalance from almost anything. The Lord's Hydrofix is the only hydrogen machine that produces structured hydrogen that results in a more stable, longer-lasting, higher-saturated hydrogen water. Super nanobubbles of hydrogen make it easier for your body to utilize hydrogen. Meticulously engineered in Japan, the Lord's Hydrofix Premium Edition produces the longest-lasting, most stable, pH-neutral, non-toxic, natural hydrogen on the market. Hydrogen is among the most common and abundant molecules in our universe. As the smallest, most basic molecule in existence, many scientists believe molecular hydrogen to have played a pivotal role in the creation of the universe and everything in it. Our own sun, another one of my favorite lifestyle nutrients, is almost entirely made up of hydrogen. I like to think of hydrogen as a molecular supplement that, in a holistic health model, serves to support our bodies optimal functioning while reducing inflammation that is largely a result of the highly toxic environment we're living in. The quality and type of water we drink is likely the most undervalued and misunderstood component of health. Adding hydrogen to your water treatment routine may just be the missing link in your path to radical wellness. Check out the link for the Lord's Hydrofix by Holy Hydrogen and the Jen's Favorite Things tab at genmayo.com for $100 off your purchase. Your purchase helps support bringing you innovative ideas for optimal health and wellness on the Body Literacy Podcast.
Um, I talk a lot about uh, in my own health journey that uh, losing my health insurance was by far the best thing that ever happened to my health. Because even though it was for a very brief period of time, just existing outside of that system for a few months uh, opened up. I mean, it was like Alice in Wonderland moment where I realized how many other um physicians and healing modalities and healers and so forth that were part of a toolkit that I didn't have access to, or I didn't think I had access to once when I was inside of that system. So um, it is a big mental leap to make if you're used to having um, health insurance or Medicare uh, as a crutch, if you will, to lean on. Um, But I think once you start giving yourself permission to seek those real healing opportunities, um, it becomes a no brainer. Granted, financially, I realize that that doesn't always work for everybody. Um, but definitely <laughs> there's some structural things that need to, to change within those systems, um, to better serve people. I think we both probably agree on that at least. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah. It's very unfortunate, especially for people who are, poor and don't have financial resources, getting the kind of care you need is very difficult to find and very difficult to afford. Um, It is not cheap to treat Lyme disease. It's estimated that it costs most patients about $20,000 a year to get well. Now, if within two years you get your health back, that's well-spent money. But however, there's not that many people have $40,000 to throw around. So it's a very, very difficult issue. And as you say, there have to be some legislative shifts. Exactly. Um, but that's but that's not where we are now. Right. We're, cur- we're currently in medicine for both mold and Lyme in the denial phase. This, yeah. is not a, this is not a real thing. The doctors who are treating this are charlatans. They're making money on all of you. Right. They're, they're, they're feeding you information. These are not proven to our satisfaction. Um, so the system is not yet primed to be aware of its own shortcomings. Right. Um and we kind of talked a little bit earlier about the the use of language um and i think that comes into play a lot in the field of medicine um do you feel like the term i i t- i mentioned this a lot the term evidence based medicine i certainly it, ha- it has a lot of validity to it but i feel like it's also used to marginalize things that haven't been fit into this um, box that's really been used more for, you know, drug companies and so forth. Um, is just, is just even our use of the language part of the problem? Well, first of all, I hate the term evidence-based. Yeah. Medicine, um, for a number of reasons, the main one being it is not scientifically valid. Yeah. And however, it is bandied around as the scientific basis for all of the practice of medicine. Right. What people don't realize is that the science behind evidence-based medicine is very fragile. Yeah. The concept of evidence-based medicine is that if we take enough research, even if that research is flawed, Mm -hmm. eventually enough data, it will be valid. So in other words, if you look at most medical studies, 
and you take experts, they will tell you that that study is flawed in a variety of ways. It's almost impossible to do perfect research, virtually impossible. So that what you look at is, and in fact, in all the papers that get published, as soon as a paper gets published, a couple of academics will go over it and go, that wasn't counted for, you didn't uh, take this into account, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. So virtually everything published as research is flawed. I know people don't want to hear that, but it's true. So the concept to me of taking a whole lot of flawed research and turning it into gold by by taking more numbers, that's flawed, meaning it's not scientifically logical. It doesn't make any sense. And as you're also saying, and I completely agree, it's being used as a way of disproving anything that it doesn't want to look at. So here's the other detail to it. Um, For those of us working with mold and lime and things like that, we have no financial support for any of the research we want to do because it's not being funded by a drug company or a technological company. Nobody is paying for it. So it is very hard for those of us who are on the front lines to take the time and money, our own money, to actually publish something in a medical journal that is peer-reviewed. So now there are some journals which are not peer-reviewed but perfectly legitimate that are publishing a lot of the information we're starting to put out. And and what we get back from others is, that's not peer-reviewed, and I want to read it. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, we've done some really (laughs) good research. Right. But the fact that it's not peer-reviewed, that's a a made-up concept of, well, if it were peer-reviewed, then I would... It it makes our attempts to share what we know um, invalid um, based on completely facetious reasoning. So forgive me, but I go on a little rant. I hate the concept of evidence-based medicine because it views itself as the bastion of scientific holiness and and it's not. Right. Right. Totally. And I feel like we're kind of on the verge um, or in the infancy, I guess I should say, of um, the the potential that the information age has to compile information and use algorithms to connect doctors like yourself with what would probably formerly be called anecdotal evidence um, in a manner that it could be processed in a way to really pick apart what from your practice and what from another doctor's practice and so forth is is consistently working well and parse that data so that it might be more useful and in in this context I'll call evidence based maybe but um unfortunately I don't think there's the motivation to uh probably for financial reasons to make that happen even though I think it's probably very possible at this point um it, it is and we're kind of um on the threshold of that right now, yeah. Um, uh, Dr. Rich Horowitz, who's one of the top Lyme docs in the country, has developed a questionnaire for Lyme disease, which was validated and peer-reviewed so that he can simply say, if you score this on my test, the likely is... So 
we're we're just putting that together for mold now. Okay. Uh, with um, Joe Krista and a number of my other colleagues, we are now putting together the same kind of questionnaire. We're going to get enough numbers to make it scientifically valid by anybody's way of looking at it. And right. that's a, that's our first step. We're then going to take that questionnaire. And I'm currently working with literally hundreds of physicians who are looking at mold and Lyme the way I do. And we're going to, in our own practices, simply collect data so that we can begin to prove that, yes, this condition exists, and yes, we can treat it, and these are the treatments that are the most successful using what you're describing as an algorithmic process. But right. say, yes, yes. Yeah, great. That That's good to hear that. Um that there are people in the background working on that. Uh, I think there's a lot well, of possibilities we, there. We all recognize the um, difficulty of getting the medical profession to recognize that what we do is valid. And we're all willing to even pay out of our own pockets some money to get this research launched and get it in front of people because my my focus at this point in my life is to simply raise consciousness that these conditions exist and they're right. treatable right and they're treatable yeah um and kind of back to back to the mold illness um and like you said it's been more um seen as an allergy in the past. And uh, a lot of doctors maybe aren't aware of the other symptoms that go along with it. So I think most people are maybe familiar with more respiratory system symptoms um, associated with it, but there are a wide variety of symptoms that go along with, um, with mold toxicity. Can you tell us more about what symptoms people might be experiencing if that's a possibility that they've been exposed to? Absolutely. So virtually every organ system can be affected. You can have sinus congestion, sinus infections, headaches, joint pain, muscle pain, muscle spasms, um, respiratory issues, including what looks like asthma but isn't, wheezing, shortness of breath. Um, you can have it can affect the brain in a variety of ways. So it can cause some of the sensitivity that we're talking about. It can cause anxiety, depression, OCD. It can make any psychological condition work. It can cause cognitive issues, difficulty with focus, memory, and concentration. A concept in Alzheimer's now that has um, been well-documented and proven, even in peer-reviewed journals, that Alzheimer's is an inflammatory process, and the work that's being done shows that about 60% of the people with Alzheimer's have mold toxicity. Many others have Lyme disease. So what the medical profession is missing is curable pieces of this. And if we cure the, uh, the causes of that, we could help millions and millions of people not go down the tubes. So, so uh, peripheral neuropathies of every type, um, abdominal symptoms of every type, gas, bloating, diarrhea, constipation, what looks like irritable bowel syndrome. And, and that's just tip of the iceberg. Okay. So almost any symptom that you have, but the key would be if you had a bunch of symptoms that don't make sense and Conventional physicians often say, you can't have all of that. 
And the answer is, when you're inflamed, you could have all of that. So if, if, if you or your loved one or someone, a friend or someone in your family has, is sick, and fatigue, cognitive impairment, anxiety, depression, pain of various sorts, and people aren't figuring it out. Think mold, think Lyme. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you talked earlier too about um, kind of there being a different uh, expression of inflammatory conditions via um, somebody's age. Do you find that if inflammatory conditions that go undiagnosed and untreated early in life um, continue that way that they develop into other issues, like you said, uh, like with Alzheimer's and so forth later in life? Absolutely, they do. Yeah. And for example, autoimmune condition is triggered by mold and Lyme and virtually every type of autoimmune condition possible. So if someone was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, they ought to be looking for mold and Lyme because if it goes untreated, it becomes that. Yeah. If it goes untreated, you'll develop mast cell activation, which is another inflammatory process that that layers this process in a very difficult way. Okay. And how, how common is mold illness? It's estimated that 10 million Americans have it right now. Wow. Not rare. Right. Right. Um, wow. Yeah, that is, that's great. So, and this is usually, it's usually the case that somebody's either been living and working in a building that had some sort of water damage. Yep. That's where you get it. You you get it almost always, not from food, but from water damaged buildings. And there are, unfortunately, there are a lot of them. Um, uh, Schools, for example, are notoriously moldy because they don't have the budget to clean up um, a leak when it occurs. Uh, Colleges, a lot of the college dorms are that way. I can't count the number of young people who I've treated with mold toxicity who were well till they got to college and then they couldn't think, they had fatigue, they couldn't function, and they got it at, at college because that's kind of the way it is. Government buildings, military buildings, um, often moldy. Um, so And I've heard of stories of people actually having to move because it's that even if you've treated the mold, the it's the mycotoxin that's still present that you can't necessarily completely get rid of. It's not always possible to remediate a home or a building. Okay. Some you can, some you can't. I've had people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars unsuccessfully remediating their home. Wow. So, um, and you could sometimes do it for much, much less than that. But the bottom line is, if you have mold toxicity, you won't get well if you stay in a moldy environment. Impossible. Okay. So that you have to figure out whether it's at work or at home. And either way, um, you have to either remediate those areas or move. For some people, it's very difficult that they have a job and they don't know if they can get another job, but they can't keep working in that moldy building or they're going to stay sick. Right. These are very difficult questions, which really throw families into disarray. Yeah, I bet. I bet. 
Um, and mold's considered a biotoxin, correct? That's correct. Does that have different features than, say, a chemical toxin? Not necessarily. Okay. Each toxin affects the body differently, but many of the toxins affect the body similarly, almost always as an inflammatory process. Okay. So, uh, yes, there are some unique features that mold toxicity might look a little different than mercury toxicity or lead toxicity, but there would also be similarities. Um, okay. All of the above would have fatigue or cognitive impairment as a part of uh, the issue. Okay. Okay. Um, and I think I've seen you reference that about 25% of the population uh, roughly kind of fall into this ultra sensitive category and maybe don't detox as well as the other 75% of the population. Why is it that some people are better at detoxing than others are? Again, it's genetics and your innate biochemistry. So genetically, it's estimated that, and this is a very hazy guess, that about 25% of people um, genetically aren't able to detoxify mold the way other people would, which would explain why if you have a moldy office building and you had 10 people working in that office, one or two of them might be sick and the others would be fine. And so the ones that are fine go, can't be the office, I'm fine. But, but, but that's, again, not a valid concept for that person who is more susceptible. However, it's not a 25% clean number because if anybody is exposed to mold toxin long enough, they may get sick. Yeah. So it has to do with the amount of exposure, the length of their exposure. Um, and and I, I think people who are genetically not specifically wired to get it will get it. So it's not a, a get out of jail free card. Um, it's it's a there, but for the grace of God, go I. Right, right. Um, and can you expand a little bit, you know, for somebody who has gone through this and is going through the detoxification process, um, what are our organs of elimination and why is it important for those to be in really good shape before going through the detox, detox process? The, the organs of elimination are the liver, the intestinal system, the skin, the lungs, and the kidney primarily. Okay. Yep. Of those, the liver is probably the most important okay. because it is our major organ of detoxification. The body takes all toxins to the liver to be processed. And the liver has phase one and phase two enzyme systems that specifically break down and change chemically those toxins into water-soluble toxins that they can eliminate through the kidney. Okay. So those are our organs of elimination. And forgive me, but it's pretty obvious that if they're not working and you're toxic, you have a problem. Right. So optimally, we would want all of those organs to be functioning at their best. Okay. Coming back to something we talked about before, sure. we talked about the fact of how toxic this world is. There are estimated to be 80,000 chemicals in our current environment that did not exist 50 years ago 
the vast majority of which have never been studied as to their safety in humans. So we are now living in a toxic soup of chemicals that never existed before in human condition. So just think of what a burden that is on our liver. So there you are struggling, just living in our environment just the way we do. And there is nowhere on this planet that is safe. I don't care if you go to the, to the um, ice fields of, of Greenland. There, that's toxic, too. There's no place on this planet that is safe. Sorry about that, folks. Um, so if you then get mold toxicity, then you have a, we, we call that toxic load which is the liver can only work so much on what it's got. And if you add something to it, it overloads it. And so at a certain point, the, the total load of toxin that we're exposed to becomes very, very relevant. And again, even if you have none of these problems, if you're healthy, it would behoove you to reduce the toxins that you're getting exposed to the best of your ability. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Um, and how exactly is mold illness diagnosed? It's easy with a simple urine test. Okay. You can simply collect a specimen of urine and send it to any of several laboratories in this country. Um, the laboratory that I think does the best job is real time. And you simply send them a urine specimen. They will analyze it from the perspective of looking for multiple mycotoxins, mold toxins in that urine. If they're present in your urine, you have it. I mean, there's no getting, I mean, it's pretty simple. There's, there's no real getting around it. If okay. There shouldn't be any mold toxins in your urine. Okay. And how do both mold and Lyme disease impact the immune system? In somewhat different ways, they both stimulate the immune system to make inflammatory cytokines. Um, when I talk about inflammation being the key to all of this, the, what is triggering that inflammation are called pro-inflammatory cytokines. Now, mold toxins do it, and several infections like Lyme and co-infections of Lyme uh, and several other, uh, some viruses can do it, um, uh, COVID stimulates cytokines. We've learned a lot from COVID is that it causes what we call cytokine storm, meaning profound release of cytokines that overload inflammation to the point that it can be life-threatening. So infectious conditions can do it. Toxins can do it. Okay. Okay. Um, and you talk about this concept of the cell danger response uh, in the book, which um, I was previously familiar with the concept, but I didn't necessarily know it had an actual name or terminology. Can you explain what that is? I'll, very complicated, but I'll try okay. to simplify it as much <laughs> as I can. The cell danger response is the brainchild of a brilliant physician named Bob Navio, who's uh, a professor at UC San Diego. Bob has been putting together biochemical information for his whole medical career. And he put it together in 2013 as something that he described as the cell danger response. The basic idea is that no matter what it is that is triggering it, it could be a toxin, 
or an infection, the body goes through certain very clear biochemical dance, if you will, to try to deal with the toxin or to deal with the infection. So there are three things that will set off a cell danger response. Toxins, infections, and stress. And sometimes they all come together. And basically, the way Bob understands it, he, he lays out carefully how multiple biochemical perturbations will occur in the body predictably with any of these stresses, so that if we understand that, we can understand how to reverse it. But the key to reversing it is until the body feels safe, it can't accept a lot of treatments. Mm-hmm. That would otherwise be appropriate. So if you don't deal with the toxin like mold or the infection like Lyme, you can't get the body into a state of safety and the uh, body will stay sick for a very long time. So the essence of this concept is to understand where the body is stuck in the healing process so we can move through the healing cycle, which is a process uh, that Dr. Navio has laid out in great detail. Okay. Okay. Um, and I think that's a huge component. And I, you know, I wish, you know, more mainstream and allopathic doctors knew more about that. We kind of talked about the, the autonomic nervous system earlier, but um, it, just that concept of the, the tricky patient uh, that doesn't seem to get well, despite um you know, the best efforts that seem like they should have worked or worked for most people. Um, that tends to be sort of uh, the missing puzzle piece, uh, I think. And I know you talk about, um, I think it's Annie Hopper's, dy- is it the d- dynamic neural retraining system yes. um, in their book? And how does that work? What, how does that fit into the, the picture of the overall um, healing from one of these chronic illnesses? At a certain point, Many, not all, but many of these inflammatory illnesses will affect the limbic system, which which is the part of the brain that monitors, regulates, and controls two main things, emotion and sensitivity. Even in the functional medical world, I see way too many practitioners get caught up in downstream details and not dealing with what I call root cause. So, for example, I get so many of my patients will have come to me. We're having treated methylation and mitochondrial dysfunction for several years with making no progress. And what their practitioner is not recognizing is those are secondary downstream effects. Almost everybody with mold toxicity and Lyme disease will not methylate properly. Their mitochondria won't work properly. That's a given. So telling someone, and I've seen this come out of major medical centers. I've seen people at Mayo um, say, oh, your problem is, you know, is your mitochondria aren't functioning properly. And I go, duh. Um, none, of my, none of my patients' mitochondria are functioning properly. That's not a diagnosis. I know you think you have a name for it. But what is affecting those mitochondria? So part of this digression is to emphasize, if you are getting treated, and I don't care who it is, even by me, and if you're not making progress, we are not identifying what it is you need to treat. Um, There's no getting around that. So 
you're treating the wrong things in the wrong order. So coming back to the limbic system, it is very undertreated in in that many of my patients have developed sensitivities and anxiety or depression. Mm -hmm. And if a patient has that, you have limbic dysfunction. Once you have limbic dysfunction, your body isn't safe. Here comes the cell danger response. So in that state of not being safe, you can't heal until you feel safer. Mm -hmm. So treating the limbic system, the vagal nerve system, which is also devoted to this, and mast cell activation, that's my three biggies. The three things that don't get looked at that prevent people from healing with an otherwise decent treatment program is looking at the limbic system, the vagal nerve system, and mast cell activation. Those are the biggies that I see being missed. Okay. And what is mast cell activation? Mast cells are a type of immune cell present in every tissue of the body, but they're particularly present in the interface with our bodies in the outside world. So sinuses, gut, primarily. When mast cells become activated as an attempt to protect us, they will react to anything in an activated state. So mast cell activation can result in drinking water and making you sick. And that illness that you get from it is from histamine release primarily. So again, I've had doctors say, you can't get sick from drinking water. Yes, you can. If you have mast cell activation, that is a tip-off. There's your diagnosis. If someone tells me that they they will have palpitations and fatigue and cognitive impairment and abdominal cramps drinking water immediately, I have my diagnosis. It's Not only is it possible, I also know what's wrong and I know how to treat it. So again, we're talking about a lot of things that could be taken negatively. I want my take-home message is always, these things are all treatable. Yeah, Everything we're talking about is treatable. Okay. Okay. Um, and you also talk about, um, you know, more in, on the patient, patient care end of things, um, that the single most important aspect of approaching these very sensitive patients is just simply to believe them <laughs> when they tell you they don't feel well. Um, why is that such a challenge in the, the system that we're currently working in? I honestly, you know, having practiced for over 50 years, I have no idea why you wouldn't believe someone when they told you something. Yeah, Yeah, there might be a handful of malingerers that I've seen in my whole medical career. The vast majority of people who come to me are seriously simply communicating to me what's going on for them. Mm -hmm. And why wouldn't I believe them? However, there are physicians who take it upon themselves to decide what those symptoms mean. Right. So they will sometimes say the constellation of symptoms you're talking about aren't possible. So this has got to be in your head. Mm-hmm. What that shows to me is the ignorance of the physicians saying that there are, as we've talked about, There are many, many, many things that will create an inflammatory process that will affect virtually every organ system in the body. So to say that's impossible tells me 
You simply haven't learned enough to know right. what's possible. So, however, physicians carry weight. Not only so, if you're a patient in a room and a doctor is looking at you and going, "This is in your head," a intuitively you know they're wrong. Yeah, but it's very hard to say to a physician for most patients, "You're an idiot. You're wrong." Um, most people couldn't do it. It's probably good in the light of communication. But the worst part of that is that the patient's spouse or family may be with them at that visit. They hear this is in your head, and they start to doubt their beloved family member. And that's where we really go down the tubes. Right, right. And I think that often leads to people concealing how they feel. How does that uh, impact their healing process if they're having to keep however they're feeling concealed from even friends and family members, much less doctors. Well, it does. Um, it, it's profound. And I call that iatrogenic PTSD. The word iatrogenic means physician caused. Okay. So now we have a patient who doesn't want to see a physician because she doesn't want to be told again, this is in your head. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when when people have seen 20 doctors before they get to me, um, they're already gun shy. Yeah. Uh, they're already, and, and my main job at the first visit is to build therapeutic rapport with them, to yeah. help them understand, I believe you, I'm sorry about the way you were treated, you're not going to get treated that way here, let's take your information and work with it, I yeah. do think, I do think that we can help you. I do think we can get the bottom of this, get to the root cause and get you well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that means I have to work a whole lot harder than I want to. Right. <laughs> to undo the negative effects of all the people they've seen before me. So right. is this a travesty? You bet it is. Yeah. But um, we're doing our best to educate the medical profession and the public. And that's why, my books are out there. I want people to understand what the what we do know right. in the medical field, not what you were told. Right. But we do actually know a lot about how to help you. Right. Right. Um, once somebody who kind of falls into this ultra sensitive category has healed from mold or Lyme or mast cell activation or whatever might be plaguing them, um, because they're already sort of this highly sensitive individual, do they have to be hypervigilant to make sure that they don't relapse or fall ill to something else later down the road? I hope not. (laughs) Um, That's not a good therapeutic strategy. Right. Because we've talked about the limbic system as key to the concept of sensitivity. So once the limbic system gets quieted down, and yes, it can quiet it down, it it can quiet down to the point that a very ultra-sensitive person can be well in environments that used to make them sick. Mm -hmm. Okay. Once well, I want their message to be, you are well and you can stay well. You already have the tools to help you should you have any reaction whatsoever, and you don't have to have any reactions so I do not recommend hypervigilance as a way of life. That's a way of keeping that limbic system fired up. Activated, yeah. Not, not a good strategy. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. 
Um, well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Is there anything that I didn't already cover with you that you think would be important for our listeners to know either about chronic disease or, or navigating the medical system as a patient who maybe hasn't been well-received by doctors um, looking at more complex problems? You know, um, I think we covered a lot of ground. Yeah. At the risk of being self-serving, but I actually okay. mean this. I actually mean this to help people. I would really encourage people to read some of my books. Absolutely. The number, the, the number one book in this category is called Toxic. Mm-hmm. If you want a shorter version, just about mold toxicity, I have an ebook which is easily read called um, Mold and Mycotoxins. Current Evaluation and Treatment 2022. Okay. I I updated my earlier book last year. Um, And again, look for my new book, tentatively called Why Is My Body So Sensitive and What to Do About It. Yeah. Um, So I I do think that you will find hope in those books and a lot more information about the details about what kinds of things you want to look at. And what kinds of things you want your doctor to look at? Right. If they are not willing to look at it or don't know anything about it, find another doctor. Yes. Um, I know that's hard for people, but the analogy that I normally make is if you brought your car into a mechanic three times and it still wasn't working, you'd find another mechanic and you wouldn't think twice about it. Exactly. Doctors should not be put up on a pedestal. Yes. If your if your doc is not helping you, find another doc. Yeah. They exist. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, if you want a listing of practitioners who have been trained to do what I do, um, they can go to my website, which is just neilnathanmd.com. Great. And there's a list of practitioners from all over the country that I have trained or work with that I know do a good job with this. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I will make sure I put um, those in the, the show notes so people can access them more easily. Is the ebook you mentioned, is that available through your website as well? No, just through Amazon. Okay. Got it. All right. Very good. Um, well, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. And um, I do have uh, the the toxic book right here. Um, I've read it one and a half times at this point and um it's by far the most comprehensive resource that I have found uh, on mold toxicity and Lyme. Um, so I can't recommend it highly enough. And I really appreciate your sharing your knowledge with us. So um, yeah, it, it was a pleasure. Okay. Thank you, Jen. Yes. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Any statements and views expressed by myself or my guests are not medical advice. The opinions of guests are their own and the Body Literacy Podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. If you have a medical problem, please consult a qualified and competent medical professional. As always, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Body Literacy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and sign up for updates over at genmayo.com. 